Today's scripture reading is Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We've all seen them. We've all encountered them. We've all felt those different emotions Compassion, pity, disdain, disgust, discomfort, despair. There's the man standing with the sign at, at the entrance to the freeway that says, Vet, anything helps, God bless. There's the couple on the streets. They're younger with a haggard-looking dog, and it looks like they haven't bathed in weeks, holding out a cup that jingles with coins as they shake it and you pass by. Or there's the mother who looks like she's barely more than a teenager, standing there with her small children. And you can't help but wonder, what happened? How did this person, how did these people end up in this place, in this situation? And then there's the person who's more forthright. They approach you and say, hey, do you have a couple bucks that you could spare? I need it to get on the bus. Now, if you're like me, more often than not, way more often than not, you, you rush past. You, you, you kind of take on tunnel vision. You know, you, you, you have your headphones in or your, your earbuds. And so it gives you an excuse to, to block it all out, to, to keep walking towards your destination. Because you know that, that if you just can ignore it and walk through, it will all go away. Sorry, I can't help you is the most you'll mutter. But sometimes when I see someone begging, I ask myself, I wonder what their story is. Why are they there and, and not me? What happened? Was it abuse, substances, drugs or alcohol, severe mental illness, or, or some toxic combination thereof? But one thing is always clear in the encounter, that I am not that person. That they inhabit another plane, almost a whole another realm of existence. You know, they're there and I'm here. And those two planes of existence could not be more distant. And never the twain shall meet except for that brief, awkward, and uncomfortable moment. And so I do what I think most people do. I, I shut them out and I just keep 
on moving. But in our passage this morning, we get a glimpse into a different world. A world where this beggar is not invisible, but he's seen. Where he's not ignored, but he's encountered. Where he isn't left behind, but he's helped to his feet. Because what we have in our passage today is an interruption, an encounter, and a picture of real power. Those are the three things that I want us to look at today. An interruption, an encounter, and a picture of real power. But first, let's just do a little scene setting. So we've moved. Uh, Pastor Matt last week preached on Acts chapter 1, which was the end, you know, kind of a new chapter we're turning on as a church. We had spent over three and a half months in the gospel of Mark. And the theme of that was God on the move. In Mark, it's all about Jesus bringing God's kingdom powerfully into the world through his words and through his actions. And it all climaxes with the cross and the resurrection. And so Jesus, you know, in Jesus, the kingdom of God powerfully breaks into the world. But that, as Matt said last week, that's not the end of the story, not by a long shot. And so in the passage we read last week in Acts chapter 1, it says, oh, you know, I wrote to you before, O excellent Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach. And so the implication then is clear that the gospel stories about Jesus' life, his ministry, his healings, his death and resurrection, all of those were just the beginning of the story about what Jesus began to do and teach. And so then the story of the church in the book of Acts, it is the continuation of the story of what Jesus is doing and teaching in the world through his spirit at work in the church. And that story continues in our passage this morning. And and, and honestly, that's the story that continues to this day in all of our churches across this, this country and this world. And so Matt pointed out last week that one of the things we see, a couple of things we see the early church doing is, is they're cultivating a rich prayer life. And so, and so prayer is at the heart of what the early church is doing when they're, when they're gathering together. And then also in that, in that chapter last week, you know, uh, they see Jesus ascend into the heavens and the angel challenges them saying, why are you staring up looking in the sky? He's going to come back just as you saw him go. So, so being attentive to what God is continuing to do in the world, how he's continuing to work in the world that we cannot just lose focus and, and be focused on, you know, the, the, the great beyond or the, or the hereafter because God is continuing to work in the world. That's clear. And Matt drew our attention to that last week. And so in our passage today, we still see those themes unfolding. Prayer and God's continuing activity in the world. And what's happened since our passage last week with the ascension, and and we're going to get back to this at the last Sunday of May is actually Pentecost Sunday. So we'll get to the Pentecost story. But in Acts chapter two, it's it's the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost and and the apostles are speaking in tongues and and people are drawn to that as a result. And, And Peter preaches this very powerful sermon and thousands of people come to faith in Jesus that day. And then there's this wonderful summary right at the end of Acts chapter 2, right before our passage, of what life was like in the early church. And I want to read it for you. And so it says this, And they devoted themselves, so the, 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 the believers, the church, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. 
And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So that's a great summary right there of what the church is supposed to be about. In our passage today, it actually fleshes out what some of that summary says, you know, states very briefly, what does this look like in actual practice in, in, in detail? Namely, we have Peter and John, we see them attending the temple together. And we see an example of, of the wonders and signs that it says happened uh, through the apostles. So Peter and John, they went to the temple to pray. They continued to cultivate a rich individual and communal prayer life. And so this is my pre-point to the sermon. This is my bonus point that I'm going to add on to the sermon. But that's what we're trying to do with praying the Psalms each and every day. Our daily devotional, which yes, you can tune into for Facebook Live at 6.30 p.m. Or you can watch it later on. But regardless of any of that, I don't care if you actually watch us every day. What I want you to do is we put out the prayer guide um, each and every week. Uh, and Bridget Nelson writes those up. Amy does a beautiful design of it. And the point of that is to get you reading and praying through the Psalms. Continuing, because collectively we're doing it together. But individually, we're spending time in God's word and we are cultivating a rich individual and communal prayer life. That is one of the most basic tasks of the church. And we want to be doing that now together. But so here they are. They're going to the temple for the hour of prayer and they're doing it along with, you know, thousands of other people. When they passed a man who had been placed by the beautiful gate. Now, here's what we need to understand about this man. He couldn't walk, and this was not a new condition or a temporary condition. He had never been able to walk. Luke tells us that, that, that he had been lame from birth. In that society, his job, as someone who couldn't work, his job was to beg for alms. And before we think, well, that's just cruel that you would consign someone to a life of, of begging. You know, there was no social safety net at that time. And actually, one of the things that made ancient Judaism unique and great is the care and concern and the, for the poor and the importance placed upon giving to legitimate beggars like this man. I mean, ancient Judaism was almost completely unique in that way. And that people like this beggar were not left on the side of the road to just die. They weren't dispensable. But that actually it was a sacred and religious obligation to provide for him. And so acts of charity for the poor, they were important. And, important, and this man could be assured that he would have food on his table because of this. Because his co-religionists had an obligation to provide for his welfare. So this is how it would work. His friends would bring him there every day. They would place him by the same gate. And people going into the temple to worship and pray, they would throw a few coins his way. Nothing glamorous, nothing complicated, but it worked. The worshipers got to fulfill their religious obligation to give alms. And he got enough money to keep on living. I kind of think about it like this, though, how it usually worked. If, if you've ever uh, driven to and then through Chicago, it is truly one of the worst experiences that a human being can have driving. And they've since updated it with technology. Now you can have the iPass and it's electronic and just sort of pass through. But back in the day, it was this incredibly cumbersome experience where you'd be driving through Chicago and then you reach a tollway and all of a sudden you're backed up. And one of the things you have to do is you drive by, by the toll collection booth and they have these baskets there that you would toss your coins into. And so it'd be like 30 five cents or something. So you toss your coins into the basket. It, you know, counts them and calculates it very quickly. And then you get the sign to pass through. 
And so I like to, to think of the people going into the temple. It's like this toll collection situation in Chicago. Okay, here they are. They're going to fulfill uh, their, their obligation and duty to pray and to worship God. And here is this beggar right there. So what they can do is just toss him a couple of pennies. And now they have the psychological permission that they need to go in to worship. So simple. See the man, toss the coins, pass through. And this, you know, when, when you would do it in Chicago, actually, one of the most traumatic experiences I had, I was not driving, it was my father, and he tossed the coins and he missed. And a dime ricocheted out. And so he had to do the most shameful thing that anyone ever has to do at a toll. He had to open the car, get out, find the dime, and put it in there. To this day, I still, I still cringe. Sorry, Dad, if you're, I know you're watching this, but, you know, we all miss our shot from time to time. So, you know, you see the man, you pay the toll, you enter the temple. Nothing glamorous, but it works and it takes care of this man. But, but Peter and John do not do And I want you to be assured that staring at people was just as awkward and uncomfortable in the ancient world as it is now. I don't know if you've ever had anyone stare at you for an extended period of time, but is there anything that makes you feel as creeped out as that? But here's the first lesson I want us to learn from this passage. See, what, what Peter and John did is, is they were interrupted in where they were going. And, and the lesson is this, is that God is just as much at work in the interruptions as he is in our plans. Let me say that again. God is just as much at work in the interruptions as he is in our plans. Because if Peter and John had not allowed themselves to be interrupted, this man would never have been healed and people would not have seen God's power. So my question for us is this. Are we interruptible? Do we allow ourselves to make space for God in the interruptions of our lives? Are we attentive to how God's spirit works in this way? And I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say that most of us don't have to think very hard about what an interruption might look like now right? What has this past, you know, five, six weeks been, if nothing, but a huge, gigantic interruption in terms of how life was supposed to go? Your job's been interrupted. Your kid's education has been interrupted. Your, your vacations and trips. I know people whose weddings have been interrupted. This is just one big, gigantic interruption. And so the question is this, where is God in this interruption? Where is he? Where have you seen him at work in this interruption? And please feel free to answer this question in, in the comments. I, I'm, I'm curious as to the answer. Because yes, this is an inconvenience. And for some people, this is, is really terrible. This is a huge hardship. And not just those who have suffered illness, but those who have lost a lot of things and their stress has raised. But even in the midst of all that, where have you seen God in this interruption? What's he trying to teach us? Where is he calling us to turn aside from our plans and see what his plan is instead? You know, for me, before all this happened, I had a very clear idea of how things were supposed to go in leading this congregation. 
We, we, we were going to move from, you know, we had done this great campaign, the Elevate campaign, and it was going to move into the Elevate project. And so for me, my job was going to be shepherding the congregation, leading this congregation as, as our church turned into a construction zone. And so we were just going to have to navigate all the difficult realities that came with that, but it was going to give us all something to rally around and be supportive of and get our hands dirty. And so we were going to go through that. It was going to be this galvanizing experience. And we come out on the other side with something very tangible that we have accomplished together. Right? That was the challenge that I was going to have in front of me. I had a very clear idea of what was supposed to happen. And then an interruption. We can't meet together anymore. We can't get our hands dirty together anymore. The closest people are getting to seeing what's happening in our building is, is, is the videos that we're posting on YouTube every week to give an update. And so instead of this collective experience, it's distant. It's isolated. It's not what I thought it was supposed to be. And so what has God been trying to teach me in this interruption? A couple of words just keep popping into my head. Connection and engagement. That, that right now staying connected and staying engaged, these are not things that we can take for granted anymore, but these are choices that we have to make together. Because when we're not physically meeting together, it is so easy to become disconnected and disengaged. And I can't just rely on a church service bringing, you know, a lot of people together once a week for my source of connection with the people in my community. And I can't rely on the regular rhythms to keep my connection with God. That is a choice that I have to make each and every day. And it's taught me the importance of engagement, which that's what discipleship has always been. Being engaged with the teaching of Jesus so much that we take those practices up and follow him in our everyday life. So how as a pastor can I be engaged? How can we create opportunities for us as a congregation and a community to be engaged and invite other people to, to be engaged in that as well? Because it's not just in this moment of challenge. It's not just about producing content to be passively consumed. That's the mistake that I desperately want to avoid. That's good enough to, you know, because if we just flip on a stream and people sit there and watch it, turn it off and go about their daily lives, what good is that? What is the point of that? No. God is challenging his church to engage in his word and his work in fresh ways. Ways that we didn't think we, we could do before. And in ways that we cannot take for granted anymore. So that's the interruption. But what about the encounter? So Peter and John, they, they don't just stare at the man and stare him down, you know, like a couple of weirdos. Uh, they, they, they also say to him, Peter says to the man, look at us, look at us. And while Peter and John fix their gaze upon him, they invite him to do the same with them. In other words, what they're looking for is eye contact. Why? Well, because what they want this man to know is not just that he is seen, but that he can see them as well. Peter and John, they want to move beyond a, a mere transactional relationship with this person to a real, genuine, person-to-person -person encounter. Because the truth is that even though people had been looking at this man for years and years and years, you know, we learn later that he's 40 years old. So think about decades of his life. People have been looking at him. No one has seen him in this way before. All of his relationships at the beautiful gate, they had been purely instrumental. 
The people were worshipers. He was a beggar. That's how it was. Throw your change in the basket, pass through the toll, continue to your destination. But here for the first time, he wasn't just a beggar. He was a person. He was invited to look upon them as a person. And so a genuine encounter, it doesn't just provide charity, which are, which are acts of love. Charity is great as an act of love, but it, it restores the dignity and the humanity of the other person. That's what genuine charity does. It restores humanity and dignity. Think about the power of that encounter. You know, have you ever had an experience of feeling like you were being treated as less than human? The closest example I can think of in my own life is those times where you go to the DMV or for me, return something at Ikea and and you're given a number. And you know that when you are given a number, you are about to be treated as a number and not a human being. And, and it's discouraging, and it's degrading, and it's debasing. You know, I go to Ikea, and they say, you know, number 45. And I go, I'm not just number 45 here to annoy you. I'm Dave Berge, and, 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 and I'm not here to annoy you, but my, my Kulleberg desk, it just needs a couple of screws. And if you can give that to me, then I can do some work. Christians, one of the greatest gifts we can offer the world is charity that focuses on affirming and restoring the dignity of the giver and the receiver. Our own Bradley Hofbauer, who just so happens to be playing uh, bass for us today, and I didn't know this when I uh, came up with this sermon illustration, but Bradley works for World Vision, which is the Christian Relief Aid and Development Organization, which is actually one of the largest charities in the country. And World Vision is is famous for a lot of things, but one of the main things it's known for is child sponsorships, where a family or an individual can sponsor a child in the developing world and provide him or her with access to nutrition and education. And so part of that experience has been that people get to pick a child to sponsor by looking at at his or her picture, and then they develop this relationship uh, with them. But recently, World Vision kind of flipped that whole concept on its head with, with, with the Chosen campaign. And it's wonderful because in the Chosen campaign, these kids aren't being picked in, in, in this scenario, or they're not being randomly assigned. The, the kids are choosing their sponsor. And so they don't just get looked at. They are invited to return the gaze. To not just be seen, but to see. And I think that's a beautiful illustration of what is happening in our passage this morning. That this man's healing involves a genuine human-to-human encounter, which restores not just his health, but his humanity. His humanity. So we've seen the the interruption, we've seen the encounter, but the last thing I want want us to look at is the picture of real power that we see here. In what must have been highly disappointing first words to hear for the lame beggar, Peter says to him in, in, in the uh, unsurpassable words of the King James Version, silver and gold have I none. <laughs> so he stopped him. They said, look at us. And then he says, silver and gold have I none. Well, what's the point of this whole thing then? That, that silver and gold is what he needed. And so Peter lets him down from the first word. He says, I don't have what you're looking for what you're seeking. 
That one thing that you're brought to for the, uh, to the temple for day after day. But what I do have, I give to you. What could that be? In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Rise up. Rise up. That, that's not just another way of saying stand up. That's Easter language. That's resurrection language. Now imagine saying that to a man who had been unable to walk since birth. He had never stood up on his own two feet, let alone gone for a walk or gone, gone running or leaping. And so Peter here has the audacity to say that in Jesus' name there is real power. For this man to turn from a beggar into a stander, into a walker, into a runner, into a leaper, and as we will see eventually, a praiser of God. Now notice where the real power is not. It is not in silver and gold. That's often where most of us assume that real power lies, but it's not there. It's not in Peter. It's not in John. It's not in some latent potential buried in the man himself. It is in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, what does it mean for there to be power in a name? It means behind that name, there is genuine authority. And we all know what it's like to appeal to the authority and the power of a name. You know, some of us name drop and that gets us access. And we know that if the, the president signs his name to a piece of legislation, that makes it law. And if I do the same thing, it makes it a joke. There is power in the right name because as is so often true, it's not what you know, it's who you know. And so when it comes to things of kingdom life, of resurrection life, well, Jesus has got the only name in town. His name, it makes all the difference in heaven and earth. Now, the details to this story, what comes next, they're, they're, they're so delightful. So Peter commands, rise up and walk. But he does something else. Listen to this. And Peter took him by the right hand and raised him up. Peter doesn't just issue a command. He also lends a hand. He helps this man to stand up on his own two feet. And so what a beautiful picture of what, what, what Christian uh, ministries of compassion, mercy, and justice should look like. That we're not just going around telling people what they should do. Try a little harder. Do a little better. No. We are extending a hand to help people stand on their feet. Not so that they become dependent upon, you know, this hand up, but so they can walk beside us as equals in Jesus' name. We both walk equally in Jesus' name. As one of the commentaries I read said, in this passage we see that the power was Christ's, but the hand was Peter's. And that's true in all of the work that the church does. That the power always belongs to Christ. But the hands, the feet, the mouths, the eyes, the ears, they belong to us. And the power of Jesus' name is not seen only in the miraculous fact that, that this person who's never walked or stood now has strength to stand on his own and, and to walk and to leap and to run and to praise God. You know, that, that would be miraculous enough. You know, I know for my own son, he's gone through countless hours of physical therapy to be able to, to, to do his version of running around. And so this in and of itself is incredible. But equally great as, as his physical restoration is the, the fact that this man is now able to follow Peter and John into the temple to worship himself. 
This man who had always had to sit outside the gate of the temple is now empowered to join them inside in the name of Jesus. He who was excluded because of his disability is now included. And I think here I would be remiss that if I didn't make this connection, if you haven't already in your own mind, to the Elevate project that's carrying on right now. You know, for those of you not in the know, uh, you know, our church right now, it's a construction zone because we're putting in an elevator and accessible bathrooms uh, because we want everyone to be able to come here and be a life, part of the life of our community. You know, we want to make our facility inclusive for those who can't climb stairs because we believe that there is power in Jesus's name and that the good news of Jesus is good news for everyone and that Jesus's name is powerful for everyone. There is no one who doesn't need him and no one who cannot meet him. And so we don't want to put any unnecessary stumbling blocks or stumbling stairs in anybody's way. Because that's not what the gospel is about. That's not what Jesus is about. That's not what God is about. One's physical condition shouldn't be a barrier to Christian community and discipleship. Full stop. And we see that in our passage today. But one other thing about this picture of Jesus' uh, you know, real power in his name, his resurrection power at work, is that commentators from the early church, if you go back and read the, the, the commentaries from the early church up through the Reformation era, especially, they see something else about this passage that we can't miss. Because they see in this lame beggar, not, not just an individual person, but a picture of us all. Because it's not just about this one man's miraculous healing. It's about God's amazing grace that's available for everyone. We are all like him. Born with a congenital condition that keeps us on the outside looking in. We are born in sin and we are powerless on our own to stand up and to enter into God's presence. This man was poor, as are we. Unable to pay our own infinite debt that we owe to God. But because of what the Son of God did for us, he left the heights of heaven and he extends the hand of God's mercy to us, condescending to our level to call us to rise up in his resurrection power and follow him and enter into the gates of God's kingdom where all sicknesses are healed, where all bad things are made right, where every sin is forgiven and every sad thing comes untrue. And where the lingua franca is total praise. We are sinners from our birth, poor and powerless on our own. And we are also saved by grace through faith to the praise of God's glorious love, which he has lavished upon us in the Son. So instead of us going out and looking for beggars to help, let us also see that in, in, in the famous words of Martin Luther. We are beggars. This is true. We are this beggar, saved by the power of Jesus' name to rise up, to walk, and to follow him. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please pray with me. Lord God, we thank you for your word, which we have heard this morning. And God, we, 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 we pray that we would experience the true power of your name. That we would meet you in the interruptions. That we would encounter your image bearers as human beings. 
And Lord, that our relationships would be genuine and not instrumental in any way. And Lord God, we pray that your power would be at work in our hearts to to empower us to stand on our own feet so that we can follow you and be about your work in this time and in this place. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.